Thank you, Jenny and team. Appreciate that. I also just an encouragement, Jenny. I feel like when you lead us, it's more than just singing songs. That you're something happens when you sing over us, and I just really appreciate your gift. I just want to say that in front of you all, but thanks. Yeah. It's good good to be with you all this morning in this room, in the Japanese hall. Good to uh, see your faces. And uh, just wanted to name something right off the bat. A question I know that you're all carrying. I've been hearing buzz about it all morning. So I just want to name the elephant in the room. And the question is, are the purposes and activities of Kanye West of human origin, or are they of God? You're welcome. I hear that a lot. Like, Scott, you just say the things I'm thinking. Thank you. Um, Kanye released an album called Jesus is King. Here are, here's a lyric from one of his songs called Closed on Sunday. He says, I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his. I'm no longer my own. Kanye is Christian. Con converted, it seems. And in the same, out of the same mouth, uh, said these words, I am unquestionably, undoubtedly, the greatest human artist of all time. It's not even a question at this point. It's just fact. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, I guess the bigger question is, how are we to know if anyone's an individual or a group, their purposes or activities are of human origin or of God? And uh, I think the next part of Acts deals with this a bit. And so for those of you who are new, uh, or perhaps a reminder for those of you who forgot, we are in a series uh, walking through the book of Acts. It's a multi-part series, and uh, we stole the title from Barbara Brown Taylor uh, from this quote. The book of Acts, she says, is the story of their adventures, their being the, the Jesus followers, which is why I like to think of it as the gospel of the Holy Spirit. In the first four books of the New Testament, we learn the good news of what God did through Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we learn the good news of what God did through the Holy Spirit by performing artificial resuscitation on a room full of well-intentioned bumblers and turning them into a force that changed the history of the world. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump right in to Acts 5, 17 to 42. God, we come to your text, the scriptures this morning, with humility. I do, and I want to uh, serve you in the scriptures well. So pray that you'd help me in spite of me, and uh, Lord, that you would speak loudest this morning, and uh, pray that as we open the word of the Lord, that you would speak to us. Amen. If you have a chair Bible, um, you can turn to page 761, and that's where you'll find the text this morning. Acts 5, 17 to 42. Then it says, the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, 
were filled with jealousy. Uh, before we continue reading any further, I think this needs a bit of explanation. Uh, so there's some backstory here, because it starts out, then the high priest. So what happened before this? Well, uh, the followers of Jesus, the apostles, were doing signs and wonders, miracles. And it said the Sadducees, who controlled the official political structures of Judaism at the time, and were the majority members of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, which is pictured here, is uh, like the political world, the assembly or the council. The word literally means uh, sitting together. Uh, so a council of rabbis who were appointed to sit as tribunal or judges over the land and over the law. So why were they jealous? Well, these miracles were happening and they weren't coming from them. It wasn't coming from the temple. It was coming from outside the temple from these Jesus followers. The word jealousy is actually translated more accurately religiously motivated rage. So they were furious. Let's continue reading in verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. That phrase is interesting too. This new life. Do you see that in verse 20? Tell all the people about this new life. Some translations say just this life. And I think it's important to acknowledge this is a new movement. It didn't even have a name yet. Thousands of people had been converted to this Jesus movement. It wasn't till later uh, in, in Acts, actually, not until chapter 11, so a few months or years later that it was called Christianity, meaning Christ people or little messiahs. The movement was also known as the way. Uh, here, interestingly and significantly, is known as this life or this new life. Let's continue in verse 21. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts. Uh, Speaking of the apostles, the followers of Jesus, they had been in prison. Now they entered the temple courts as they'd been told by the angel and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. So the high priest still think the disciples are in jail. So they sent the, jail to go get, the jailer to go get them. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and his, the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. I also think this is very, it's kind of humorous that they were this close, that someone could like look out the window and say, look, there they are. So they didn't escape and run away. They actually just went closer to where the people that decided their fate were. They went to and close to the Sahedrin. They were that close. So at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. Uh, they did not use force, however, because they feared that the people would stone them. Um, last night, it seemed like a good idea, but I've, I kind of had this visual in my head, like how, 
how, were, how frustrated were the religious leaders? Uh, so th for better or for worse, this is, I think, how uh, they must have felt. The religious leaders being the big muscle man. You get the idea. They're like, I thought we got rid of these people. I thought they were gone. I thought they were in jail. Now they're out, and they keep slipping out of our control. It's classic shampoo prank discipleship. Um, verse 27, let's continue. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priests. They said to them, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, this name being the name of Jesus. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. A bold statement say, saying to the high priest, the person that represented God and facilitated God's presence in that time. Peter and, his, and the apostles are saying, we must obey God rather than human beings. The stakes were so high. Continue in verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So here we're introduced to a new character, Gamaliel. Later in the narrative, this character comes back. In fact, in a significant role, this uh, specific Pharisee uh, was known to... Uh, to teach and to disciple another very prominent figure in the New Testament. That is uh, a person by the name of Saul, who we know by Paul. Later in Acts 22, we can read about that. But Gamaliel was a famous Jewish scholar and teacher, and he was highly regarded in the rabbinic tradition. So this is, he enters the scene, this is what he says. He addresses the Sanhedrin. All of these people, they said there were 72 religious representatives. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. 
But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Lots going on here. So so many things. Uh, This theme, though, of obeying God rather than people keeps coming up. And in this key phrase, Gamaliel, he says, therefore, we can put it up on the screen, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Uh, In the Greek, I know this is going to be just maybe nonsense to most of you, but this is the Greek statement and there's two, two words that I want to point out. There's ex-anthropon and ek-theo. Can you guess what those two words mean? Ex-anthropon and ek-theo. Anthropon meaning anthropology, human, yep. Uh, theo, God, yes. So from uh, humans and from God. And just even a little bit further, that little word, it's um, an important little Greek word, or as I like to call it, an I-L-G-W, important little Greek word. There's all sorts of, that's not a thing, by the way. Um, There's all sorts of I-L-G-Ws in Scripture, but this one is really, really significant, especially in this context. Uh, The word is ek. Say it with me. Ek. Ek, meaning from or out of a place. And it denotes uh, an origin or a source of. So the ek really matters. The origin or the source of something really matters. For example, if you said to a friend, I need some power, I need some juice for my phone or my laptop, can you plug it in? Yeah, I only have this orange, though. So like the source of it, the orange matters, the origin. That joke really seemed to, like, that joke killed last night in my head. <laughs> the origin, the orange matters. I'll leave it. Uh, there's many uses of this word, though, ek, in the New Testament. Sometimes uh, it's helpful to look at other places where it's used in order to understand what it's meaning here. So let's take another look at a different passage of Scripture where ek is used. And I thought since Baptism Sunday is coming up, let's go to a baptism. Let's go to Jesus' baptism and look at the ek in Jesus' baptism narrative. See if you can spot it. In... uh, Chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 13 to 17. You can flip there if you want to in verse, uh, page 676. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love with all, with I am well pleased. I'll give you a hint. The ek is in verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son from uh, uh, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Can you, can you uh, spot where the ek might be? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting really nerdy here, but it's the from. A voice from or ek heaven. Uh, the word heaven is translated oron, which could literally mean the heavens or sky or the place where God is seated. The ek matters. It matters hugely, actually. Uh, for instance, if the text here said, a voice from hell said, saying, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. That would be interesting. That would change the narrative. Or if it was a voice from behind the nearby tree, this is my son of love, I'm well pleased. That would change the narrative too. But the convincing proof is to do with the ek. Where is the voice coming from? Coming from the heavens. And this is in an age where there's no drones, no airplanes, no extended ladders to get above into blank space and to project a voice down. So this was truly impressive. All, all that and a dove-like creature descending on Jesus. Very significant. All that to say the ek is important. And the ek in Acts 5 is important as well. Let's go back there. The next slide. Again, this phrase. Let's look at it again. For if their purpose or activity is ek, human origin, it will fail. The source is from humans, but if the source is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So I guess the only real question is what the eck, right? Again, jokes that were funny late last night. Uh, considering what, what, what does this all mean? What, why does this matter? What, how do we take the scriptures today and read them and apply them to our lives? And uh, I think a really good question that Lance helped us answer uh, the other week was, when we come to Scripture, is it descriptive or prescriptive? And the danger in using this prescriptively is we start thinking maybe we are the judges, that we can decide if something, even Kanye, is of human origin or of God. We start thinking of individual people, instances, when this is not what the passage is about. John Stott, a famous pastor, theologian from England, also agrees. This is not a prescriptive statement. He says this about this, this specific verse. We should not be too ready to credit Gamaliel with having uttered an invariable principle. To be sure, in the long run, what is from God will triumph, and what is merely human, let alone diabolical, will not. Nevertheless, in the shorter run, evil plans sometimes succeed, while good ones conceived in accordance with the will of God sometimes fail. So the Gamaliel principle is not reliable index to what is 
from God and what is not. So what is Stott saying here? I think he's naming our tendency as humans to, to be judge-based and to measure according to our own versions of success and failure. Uh, I think he's saying that failure, however we measure it, or success is not always an indication of whether something is of God or not. Also, I think a helpful caution as we come to Scripture not to be so quick about making something prescriptive. Oh, Gamaliel said this. Oh, okay, yeah, this is my new mission statement for life. If, you're, if, you're, if your practices and your purposes and your activities are of God, then I'm with you. If not, I'm against you. That's not what this is saying. And back to the original question, are Kanye West's activities and purposes from God or man? I'm not sure. Time will tell. And it's not what this passage is trying to say. I think what Luke, the author of Acts and the author of the Gospel of Luke, is showing us that Christ is building the church, that this Jesus movement, the movement without a name, is of God, is ekthio, exclamation mark. And he has the vantage point of seeing through the early church history and seeing all the things that happen. We have the advantage of being part of a church, looking back over history and seeing how this movement has not gone away. Gamaliel, in his defense, mentions two movements that are ek-anthropon, that are uh, of human origin. So some time ago, Thutis, he says in verse 36, appeared claiming to be someone, and about 400 men, that's pretty decent, 400 people came and rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and it all came nothing. It all fizzled out. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared, not Judas of the, the disciples, but another Judas, in the days of the census and led a bond, uh, band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. Both instances of ek anthropon, human origin. So Luke is showing how this movement, the movement without a name, is different, is ek theo. And back to the beginning quote by Barbara Brown Taylor, the first four books of the New Testament, we learn the good news of what God did through Jesus Christ. In this book, we learn the good news of what God did through the Holy Spirit by performing artificial resuscitation on a room full of well-intentioned bumblers and turning them into a force that changed the history of the world. I think the good news of this passage is that Jesus is building his church. And it's not the way we would do it. And success is probably also not the way we would view it. Through the centuries, Christianity, as many of you know, has faced many persecutions, many failures. It's gone through schisms and revivals, formations and reformations and deformations, times of peace and rest and times of intense persecution, yet still somehow remains. This Jesus movement still pushes forward. I love what Rodney Stark observes. He was a secular uh, sociologist because, uh, so I say was, because he started out as uh, an atheist and converted. Later, uh, he called himself uh, an independent Christian, whatever that means. 
But he, he was converted through his studies, and this is what he found when he studied early Christianity. Started out with 1,000 members. It grew at a rate of 40% per decade. 33 million people claimed to be Christian in 350 AD. That's over half of the Roman Empire were Christian. How did this happen? What the heck? Some people attributed this growth to, as you know, there was an emperor that came and made Christianity the state religion, so made it legal. But he argues that Constantine was responding to the fact that it had already become a major religion, and he couldn't ignore it. So he embraced it, and it was something he could not deny. And Stark also continues to argue that Christianity grew because it provided a better vision for humanity how God relates to man and people to people, offered social services, Uh, the church treated women and slaves better, it was open to other people from other religions, Uh, and this is what Stark said, a really long quote, but really worth it. Uh, In his findings, he, he comes to this conclusion, Christianity revitalized life in Greco Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Amazing. So no wonder he sees the evidence. Rodney Stark, this atheist sociologist, converts to becoming an independent Christian. And since the first century, this has happened over and over again. Nero tried to stomp it out. Uh, Domitian, Marcus Aurelius, all emperors of the Roman Empire that tried to stomp this thing out. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, says this, uh, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. This is where we get the famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There's been persecution throughout history, and it has only proved somehow to refine and renew the church. And uh, incidentally, in the next chapter, we're going to look at uh, the, uh, one of the first martyrs of the church, Stephen, who was killed because of his faith in Jesus. But that will be uh, next week. Jesus still, to this day, continues to build his church. I think that's the good news, and we're a result of that. Artisan Church is not the church, but we are an expression, a branch of that, and we exist because this movement was not stamped out. Oh, a lot of info. And maybe you've come this morning. Maybe you've lost hope in the church. Maybe you are currently in the midst of losing hope in the church. Uh, Maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd. You're here. Uh, But I think all of us could use the optimism of Stephen Colbert when he says, uh, the church is flawed and human institution for whom I always have hope. I love that quote because he names that this is not perfect, that, that there are some instances of ek 
anthropon. That there's human engineered things that happen that are horrible, that are bad, that are evil, that are not right. But the things of God far outweigh and push past. Rachel Held Evans, she, she retweeted this quote on her uh, Twitter account and said, uh, Searching for Sunday is a book she wrote. She said, Searching for Sunday is this quote in a nutshell. Uh, and the book Searching for Sunday uh, the subtitle, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church. She shares her story about leaving and finding the church again in a new way. Uh, for her, she said, it's about the messiness of community and the power of grace. Searching for Sunday is about overcoming cynicism to find hope and somewhere in between church. Uh, I have to say I'm humbled by this community I'm humbled to be standing on this carpet in this place where on Monday night there was four panelists who shared their journey of identifying with being LGBTQ or SSA. SSA just meaning same-sex attracted and often a phrase used by uh, people who are same-sex attracted that hold to a traditional view. So just that background. But I was humbled to be on this, uh, I'm humbled to be on this carpet today because what was displayed on that night, on Monday night, if you were there, was just a humility and a respect for one another, um, a, a real honoring of each other's view and holding difference. And I so appreciated uh, each of you that shared that are here. I want to thank you for that. And also, just Kathy, something that stuck out from that night, she compared her relationship to the church like a marriage. And like in a marriage, you, you commit yourself. It's a covenant. Um, you don't just give up at the first sign of hard work, but you push through that. You work through it. And I'm t horribly misquoting you, but I just appreciated the sentiment of your relationship with the church being an ongoing thing. There's ups and downs. It's not always perfect, but there is a commitment. There's a covenant. There's a, a connection there. And uh, to continue to be the church is really to get back to the basics, I think. And that's the invitation I want to bring towards you uh, today, is to remain devoted, practice the way of Jesus. Like in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to Scripture, uh, devotion to fellowship, sharing life together, devotion to breaking of bread, worship, primarily the Lord's Supper, and devotion to prayer. And how do we know if a church is of God, ek theo, or of human origin, ek anthropon. Well, maybe this quote helps us a little bit. Robert Lewis said, the true measure of a church is not how many, but how loving. Not how relevant, but how real. True measures of a church are not how many, but how loving. Not how relevant, but how real. I think this is church community we all aspire to be like, and I think the responsibility really is in each of us to be ekthio, to be of God, to seek and practice the way of Jesus. And I love this vision that Rachel Held Evans uh, writes about, the, the, this vision, this new vision of the church, what it could be. Uh, she says, this is what God's kingdom is like, a bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry. Because they said yes, and there's always room for more. 
Next week and every week, we have the opportunity to live this out, to be with and for one another. And uh, a really, really, really practical way to practice this is next week, we're not gathering here. We're gathering in homes all over the city to have brunch together. And you may think it's a silly exercise, but it's actually a really important one, one where we can be the church together, where we can commit to walking this life in this, in this community together. So, uh, again, just to be ultra-practical, we're not gathering here, and we, d- we don't gather here about four or five times a year because we don't have access to the hall. They use it for something else. But please sign up and join one of the brunches that are being offered around the city. A reminder that it's going to be a surprise, so you don't know who you're going to go to. You, don't, you might not recognize the address. And if you're a host, you might not know who's coming to your door. But a great way to practice being a community together. Um, I think that's all I have to say. I just, <laughs> I just feel like that's an end right there and want to invite us to come to the table this morning. Let's remind ourselves why we come to the table and what the gospel is about. Would you say these words with me? We're indicated in bold. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the creator out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin.